Welcome to Shitty Book Reports, where the... Ah, uh, <laughs> uh, bomb, bomb. Bomb, bomb fucking... <laughs> done. <laughs> I feel like a podcast that can't say his own intro. <laughs> I'm going to keep that one. Anyway, that does it. Those things don't matter. How's it, how's it going? No. Good. Uh, did a ton of reading yesterday. Got, like, my uh, book for this week. Yeah. Uh, so my my mom got me my my third copy of um under the dome oh nice (laughs) but but it was good no it was good um because i i guess i loaned out the other two copies like however long ago so i I haven't had it for a while maybe i should should read it again now Uh, so fate brought it back to you yeah that book's awesome it is that the is ending, a very the good... ending is dog shit. The ending is so bad. But well, that's the, classic like, the... Stephen King. <laughs> he, he should have just left it, you know. But cut off the last hundred pages, and it's fantastic. But that you know, to me, I usually say to people, it doesn't really matter. Like with King, it's all about the journey for me. Like it's all just yeah. about like characters, and I'm gonna remember each character's name, and like really like have this rock solid sense of. He he gets across like everything i don't know i i almost feel like reading his books is like you're fulfilling your own expectations yeah <laughs> and it's just great it's a good time and the ending doesn't matter and honestly under the dome was a new era of paying attention to king for me because it was always one of those things where it was like oh he's like an author that is you know like all of his classics are in the past basically oh but, but that yeah that was the one you paid attention to like new yeah, so then this when new it, book when came it dropped. out. Yeah, when yeah. it dropped, and I was like, wow, like it's fun to stay on top of his releases because it was actually a fun experience to see his fans come out and stuff. So it was good. Yeah. Cool. Um, yeah, so anyways. We have a game normally, that we're trying to play. Yeah, yeah. Normally I would uh, bring a game every week. So this week, uh, this one's a throwback. I thought we could play the damn alphabet game. Like this is the easy, like most simple game ever. Right. Uh, I used to play this all the time. Like, but you're gonna have to trip. give me a recap of the rules. Yeah, it's a good it's a good road trip game. Basically, you just pick a category, and then you whoever however many people you take turns going from A to Z, and then you come up with an example. So if I do A, you do B. I do C. Okay. That sort of thing. So and we have to get through the whole today, alphabet. Yeah, yeah, it's gonna be hard. There's some letters that are gonna be, you might want to pass. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I thought today we could just do authors or something. It's a pretty good book category. Yeah. Uh, so I can, yeah, I'll go first. I'm going to count first. Let's go first names or last names. Like yeah, whatever. first or last could be an A or, yeah. Yeah, because some of them are going to be letter. fucking tough. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, so A, uh, I'll go uh, Douglas Adams. Douglas Adams. Okay, so I have B. Yeah, don't panic. Oh, my God. This is going to be so hard. For- <laughs> I have to get into the rhythm of it. I have to get into said, the rhythm of it. I said don't panic. Don't panic, yeah. Um, B is going to be... Give me a clue. Oh, my God. I can't think of anything. Uh, I'm under too much uh, pressure. Uh, uh, Stephen King, contemporary, uh, what dogs do. <laughs> <laughs> Stephen King contemporary of what dogs do? I don't have no idea how that leads to a B. 
You are, all right, uh, Clive Barker. <laughs> Isn't there that guy? Like, there's that terrible like bookshelf author, like David Baldacci. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Hey, no, we're counting everything today. It's that guy. It's that guy that you see on the shelf at the Goodwill, and you're like, who the hell is this yeah. guy? He has like a thousand books. So Baldacci. There you go. All right, Baldacci. Um, all right, uh, I got C then. Uh, okay. C. I'm gonna go with uh, uh, Agatha Christie. Ooh, I got or Chaucer, Chaucer maybe. Okay, yeah. okay. Well, I got D, so D, I'm gonna D. go Alexander Dumas. Oh, uh, dumbass, dumbass. Uh, yeah, Three Musketeers. Right. Bring it. Yeah. You're All right, e. so I'm E. Uh, oh, I hate that this is the first one that came to my head. Oh, uh, uh, <laughs> Brett Easton Ellis. Uh, oh, Brett. Yeah, but it counts. Yeah, Brett. That's Easton two E's. That's actually yeah. That's two. Unfortunately, he's a part of literary history, but I guess we'll get into that later in the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, wait, I have F. Easy, easy yeah, peasy. F. Faulkner. There William you go. Faulkner. All right, I got G. Uh, uh, I'm going to do something I read recently. Uh, William Gibson, Cyberpunk. Gibson. Okay. Yeah. William Cyberpunk, funny. is it good? Yeah. Yeah, he like invented or sort of invented that like cyberpunk sort of style. H, I have H. Yeah, you're H. Um, Harry Potter is not an author. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, H. Oh, there's a guy like something Glass, like H Glass or like Richard H Glass. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, we'll take middle names too. There's a guy who's like something H glass and he wrote <laughs> he wrote these really weird novels. Um let me let me think of another one. Um H. H? Who uh, wrote... I got one. Okay, get go, go. Uh uh Huxley. Hux okay, Aldous Huxley, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so when that happens, when that happens, you just stole it from me because I couldn't get it. I... So now I have to go again with all right, yeah, yeah, we'll give you. So uh, you took, I. you stole Huxley, and now I have to do I. Stole H, yeah. So I, I'm gonna do. I's um, fucking hard. I is hard. No, there's like the no, last name is hard. You there's a guy. Name. There's a guy like Ian McEwen. He's like a famous British novelist. Yeah, Ian. McEwen. Yeah, Atonement. Yeah. Nice. Uh, all right, J. Um, uh, Joyce. Joyce, James Joyce. Uh. Or did you mean? Or did you mean Joyce Carol Oates? Oh, uh, both. <laughs> uh, K. Stephen King. Easy. There you go. All right, L. Um. Uh, C. S. Lewis. C. S. Lewis. No problem. Okay. Yeah. Very yeah. good. Or right, you got M. M. Easy peasy. Murakami. Nice. Murakami. N. N uh. Nabokov. Nabokov, oh my god. Lolita, yeah. oh my god. Um, what? L-M-N-O? Yeah, oh. um, Orson Scott Card, Ender's Game. Nice. Alright, P. Uh, P. There's, uh, not, there's an obvious. 
Sylvia, Sylvia Plath. Plath. I was going to say there's an obvious yeah. one between the two of us, but okay, Sylvia Plath. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Q. Oh, Q? What the fuck? Oh, Don Quixote? Yeah. He's a character. <laughs> uh, we'll roll with it because Q seems fucking difficult. Uh, I can't think of that. There's any. probably another Q author. Qu- Qu- Quinn? Quick? I don't know. But anyway, Don, Don Quixote, you accepted my. <laughs> okay, my answer, we'll, go, so. we'll go with Quixote. All right, R. R. I'll, I'll appease the masses and to say J.K. Rowling. Hell yeah, you're appeasing me. Yeah. I love J.K. Rowling. Um, wait, S. S. Um, S. I mean, there's so many. Uh, <laughs> uh, Ali Smith. Ali Smith. She wrote these, like, she wrote these new British novels. She's, like, rocking it right now. She's from Scotland and nice. she's, like, killing it. Uh, so, so I got T. Yeah. Um, uh, Tolkien. Tolkien, yep. Uh, R-E-S-T-U, the freaking letter U, dude. Oh, um... <laughs> you, you, you get the harder ones. Umberto Eco, he's that guy. He wrote, like, F- Full Cult's Pendulum and stuff like that. Yeah. Umberto nice. Eco, yeah. All right, I got V. Um, uh, 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 Vonnegut. Oh, yeah, Vonnegut, that's an yeah, easy one. I'll yeah, take yeah. that. What do I have? V. I w. W. Oh. W. Um. W. Um. I feel like I want to say like another William, like William Shakespeare. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> oh fuck! I got X. Really? Um. X. Didn't Malcolm X write, write a biography? DMX. Yeah, Malcolm <laughs> X. Um, Malcolm X. Uh, they published his speeches. Yeah, so see? Yeah, yeah. There you go. All right, you stole that. You stole that. So I'll take Y. Yeah. Why? Um, uh, um, th- throwback to episode two, uh, Banana Yoshimoto. Okay. Oh, yeah, dude. That book sounded yeah. so cool, Banana Yoshimoto. I want to get that so bad. Yeah, uh, it was awesome. That book sounded so cool. Kitchen. Um, Kitchen, yeah, wow, that thing was crazy. Um, All right, you got Z. Z. Take it home. Um, I can take it home. Oh wait, didn't you? Did you go first last time? Uh, yes. Yeah. Okay, so I'm gonna end the game and start my turn by saying oh, Zadie well, Smith. Zadie oh, Smith, nice. which is a good transition into my book this week, which is White Teeth by Zadie Smith, Year 2000. Perfect. So I brought Zadie Smith to the table. Um, I'm just going to dive right into it. She um, is incredible. There's so much to know about her, but also like the I've been reading about her in preparation for talking about her today. I think I'm going to do something pretty similar that I've done with some other books where I'm not going to be talking too much about the book. I'm going to talk a little bit more about her and then the setup into White Teeth, um, which is her first novel. So, so I it, have this book. I have this book. You, okay. you, you've told me about it before, and probably I should have read it sometime in the last five years, but <laughs> I have not. Yeah, well, you've had uh, eight, 19, 18 years to do it because it came out in year 2000 Shit. when Zadie Smith, which is completely soul-crushing for all of her fans because I love her so much, but she came out with this book when she was like 24, which makes me so jealous. Mm. 
Um, <laughs> so when she was 24 years old, it was actually interesting to do um, a bit of research about her um, just because I know her writing first, so I know um, White Teeth first, and her also her, her novel Autograph Man is really uh, good. And uh, some might even say... Beauty. On Beauty, yep. And then she also did... Um, her newest one is Swing Time. That's her newest, like, full novel, which I also read. Um, okay. and, I, and I know her writing first. Like, she's very down-to-earth, like, her characters. She's, she fully expresses these characters that you are... You kind of feel like he, she has this... Um, class vibe of like she know like she grew up like in a real way with like realistic shit happening and stuff like that and a lot of her characters are very realistic in that way um but to but what's really funny is that she while she is very down to earth and stuff like that her personal past is very sort of like I went to this school and I went to Cambridge and then I went to Oxford and then I became, you know, whatever. And now I'm a professor of literature at NYU and like just very kind of like straightforward, like English literature, like 100%, which she actually mentioned um, in an interview. I'm going to plug the interview that she did with Charlie Rose after White Teeth was published. It's on YouTube. Um, her Charlie Rose interview when she's just like 23 or 24 right after White Teeth is published was really interesting. Um, I definitely think she said some stuff in that interview that she wouldn't say that kind of stuff now. I've been, I was listening, I was, I listened to a few interviews oh. <laughs> in preparation for today and it's almost like, you know, I, keep, I, I seem to be keep having this like theme here on this podcast of the books that I'm choosing of like I'm I'm always looking at developing authors like they took their like first step but they're not like seasoned yet yeah um, maybe I'm projecting there a little bit <laughs> but um, <laughs> she's like in the interview with Charlie Rose I really do feel like if you watched it with her today she would be like oh this is like embarrassing or like whatever but oh, she's any. That's anything that anyone ever does ever. It's true. It's true. <laughs> but she has some really interesting sort of like insights and, and some. Um, but basically, as part of that interview, to get back to some of her personal history, she says in that interview that she's very focused on like one thing in her life. So she was like, I'm mm -hmm. not educated about anything other than like english literature and like trying to like feel my feelings so like <laughs> which is which is sort of interesting because you know she got scooped up like she went to like school and grad school and by the time that happened white teeth happened and it was like a new york times bestseller and it's just been like you know she's on a trajectory and it doesn't yeah, really seem yeah. like the trajectory is going to stop but then it's also really interesting to have someone like her in that sort of trajectory because she writes from the heart in a lot of really interesting situations like swing time her latest novel is um i found it really interesting because it's a story of this woman who's like involved with this celebrity sort of like a lady gaga type and she's jet setting back and forth between new york and london and she feels you know all these like emotion like all this stuff happens to her and it's sort of interesting because um 
It's just both novels could not, like, I feel like both novels couldn't be written by either person, you know? Like, when she wrote White Teeth, she wasn't, like, world famous yet. And then when she comes forward and she writes Swing Time, it's like, that's what would come from a world famous intellectual. And she's, like, one of the most <laughs> famous intellectuals um, right now. Because she does, like, you know, she does tours and stuff where it's, like, if she tours in London, it's, like, a whole stadium, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. So, it's pretty crazy. Um, Is she... Where is she from? Is she from the U.S. or from the U.K.? She is. Um, she's born in Northwest London, and she has a Jamaican mother and an English father. Um, okay. And that's you're propelling me forward. That's a really good question because <laughs> White Teeth. Um, to get into the actual book itself, White Teeth is just. I mean, you couldn't find more praise for white teeth if you tried like new york times like like anything that was that's anyone in the year 2000 was talking about zadie smith this new like author and every single quote is just so glowing and like she's amazing and blah 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 and white teeth is a really interesting book because it has that sort of maximalist style that um that like a Don Delilo would have, you know, where it's like some sort of hyper realism or like amped up realism. Um, so let me just get down to the plot of White Teeth. So okay. like a White... post postmodern kind of feel to it. Yeah, postmodern feel. Uh, okay. Truth is stranger than fiction, but the truth is really outlandish. Um, yeah. So basically, the story of White Teeth is there's two best friends, Alfred and Samad. One is a white Englishman. One is Bangladesh, like born in Bangladesh and emigrated to Eastern Europe to have an arranged marriage after World War II. So these two guys, Alfred and Samad, are now living in like post-war London. I think it's like the 70s or the 80s um, when the book is set. And it goes back and forth between like war years and all stuff like that. And these two guys basically have, like, a long-lasting, like, never-ending brotherly, like, friendship because they met when they were um, involved in tanks in World War II. And they never really saw any action together, but it's just, like, that moment in their lives brought them together. So it's this friendship in the middle of the book that is sort of the most important thing. But then they have... The cast of characters is really vast, so it's like their wild, like both of their wives. You know their entire like backstory and love story and stuff like that. They also like one of them has two kids. You know about both of his kids. One of them has another kid. You know her and you know her crush and like everything like that. So there's a whole substrata of like kid life going on, on top of adult life, and it's a very co- sort of like ambitious, crazy novel that. When people when it first came out, people were like, "Who is this person?" Like she was like she's this total like wonderkin because she weaves together like all of these things of you know, Samad is going through different stuff because he is um, Bangladesh and he's also um, Muslim and he but he still masturbates and he like drinks alcohol because he lives in the UK and stuff like that. So he's like having some identity struggles with that. So there's a lot of like religion at play here. There's a lot of conversation about immigration into London. Another really great thing about Zadie Smith. I am happy to say that I was lucky enough to live in London for two years over the past two years. And she just gets London very well. I would suggest to 
anybody who loves Zadie Smith, if you haven't been to London, go to London, read her books in London. Like it's very, she's very, she captured something. And the fact, like if you know the feel of the place, then she's very special um, because she's doing something like on, on the next level. And the thing about, you know, London is that, it's extremely diversified from years and years and years of colonization and slavery and colonizing the world and going over to India and into the Middle East and stuff like that. So London is incredibly diverse and woven together in all these crazy ways. And that's sort of what white teeth kind of speaks to that. Um, And it's just a really unique perspective from someone who's really young. Um, There was, you know how long she worked on it? Because I hear that Wonderkin thing, and I think like, yeah, I think that I think I'm okay with it if they (laughs) is that your project or something. She was working on it for. I think you know it's one of those things where it's like you know a rock star's first album is really a culmination of everything that they've worked on up until that point. So I'm sure that there's some stuff in there that she was writing from a very an even earlier age. But I think what happened with her which I guess would be every, you know, creative writing major's dream is that she was just writing like a thesis basically and and um was touring some short stories and then an agent just said, We want your first book and she said, Okay. You know. So nice. that's that's pretty impressive in itself, which is great. Um Yeah. So before I go farther into um White Teeth and one of the in- interesting sort of reception uh pieces that I found about it and a piece of criticism. I also wanted to put in a weird little autobiographical note, which I think it's funny and it seems to be all over her online profiles. Um, <laughs> Zadie Smith, she went, to, so she, like I said, she's very formally educated. She went to King's College in Cambridge, you know, um, went to a bunch of comprehensive schools and stuff like that and was very well educated her entire life. Um, the... Uh, funny little biographical thing though is that she was rejected from david mitchell of mitchell and webb which is like the comedy team that made peep show in the uk is that she was she went to go be mark is that mark corrigan or mark corrigan from peep show okay Uh, that's mark corrigan (laughs) from peep show she went to be in their like troupe like at cambridge like their comedy troupe and they were like no yeah Oh, <laughs> <laughs> so she tried. I guess it's like a formal thing at Cambridge. You know, a lot of the people like like a ton of famous UK comedians have been in it and stuff like that. But she got rejected from it, which I think is really funny. And um, then she got her revenge. Well, it's interesting because in that same well, in that same Charlie Rose interview, it's really funny because she says, um, does she earlier, hold a grudge? No, earlier on in her life, okay. no, they don't talk about that, but earlier on in her life, I think that she was going for something different. I think she wanted to be like either a jazz singer or like a dancer or something like that. And there's okay. some stuff of like that in Swing Time where she does some autobiographical stuff about dance schools and stuff like that. Um, so she's one of those annoying people that's talented in a lot <laughs> yeah, of different things. Yeah, everywhere. Yeah, yeah, Shit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> another little autobiographical note before I dive into the book is that one time... My biggest, probably my biggest celebrity sighting in my own little bubble of life is that I saw Zadie Smith getting on an airplane in an airport. She went through security, oh, like shit. right next to me. And um, 
people i've lived in a lot of great like i lived in new york for a while and people always ask you like oh did you see anyone famous and my only famous person story is that i saw zadie smith and sort of shit myself but um <laughs> i did not talk to her i didn't bother her or anything but it was just sort of uh she's like the the biggest celebrity i've ever seen um that's awesome i want to read the very first paragraph of chapter two which is like you know, towards the beginning of the book. And I think this paragraph gives a, a good perspective on kind of how deep she is, how she can say something really quickly, but she gets through a lot of different people. So this first paragraph is when they first describe Archie's wife, Clara. So Man, I have a, I have a question really quick. Yeah. So is this going to be like, uh, narrated or is it dialogue because like the one thing the thing that i know about this book is that the dialogue and the language is very unique and very real or very um um specific um i can't so i, I can do it i can read another selection that has dialogue this one doesn't have okay. dialogue. this is just straight yeah. prose um okay. but yeah so this is uh i'm just gonna read this paragraph so this is talking about one of the main characters wives which you could say is a side character but she doesn't really side character anybody everyone is like an equal participant main <laughs> character so archie did not pluck clara bowden from a vacuum and it's about time people told the truth about beautiful women they do not shimmer down staircases they do not descend as was once supposed from on high attached to nothing other than wings Clara was from somewhere. She had roots. More specifically, she was from Lambeth, via Jamaica, and she was connected through tacit adolescent agreement to one Ryan Topps. Because before Clara was beautiful, she was ugly. And before there was Clara and Archie, there was Clara and Ryan. And there is no getting away from Ryan Topps. Just a good historian need recognize Hitler's Neapolic, Neapolonic ambitions in the east in order to comprehend his reluctance to invade the british in the west so ryan tops is essential to any understanding of why clara did what she did ryan is indispensable there was clara and ryan for eight months before clara and archie were drawn together from opposite ends of a staircase and clara might never have run into the arms of archie jones if she hadn't been running quite as fast as she could away from ryan tops So she has a really kind of smooth, slick way of kind of saying, like, uh, right and wrong, east and yeah. west, up and down. <laughs> she is always kind of kind of uh, bringing you in one direction and then slamming you down in the next one. Um, it's very true that, like what you said, uh, this book gets called out for its dialogue and stuff like that, probably because... If you know Londoners and you know the English accent, when you're reading some of this dialogue in the English accents that you know, it's really funny. It's really amazing. It's really crazy. Just the idea that, um, you know, one of the main characters, which is Samad, is, you know, um, Bangladeshi, but has been living in London for many years. And, you know, there's just this whole cast of diverse characters, which... If you've heard the voices, you've heard the voices, and you know exactly what she's talking about, especially in terms of the UK and, and stuff like that. So did you actually read this when you were in London? You reread it? 
I I reread sections of it when I was in London. So I read this book before I lived in London, but I reread sections of it, and I read a ton of Zadie Smith when I was reading Swing Time. Um, I lived over there. Um, but one thing that I wanted to share about the actual critical reception of this of this book, which um, is probably what I'm going to end on, to be honest, because I'm not really going to dive into the book too much as to say, other than to say, you know, that cast of characters, that type of writing, it just goes on endlessly. Like this, this book really does feel encyclopedic because of how many generations of people you learn about. Um, there's adults in the book, there's kids in the book. She's also giving the perspective. She also said in the Charlie Rose interview, she's giving the perspective of how, uh, like a post-war immigration sort of family like functions because the war is over now like my dad was in the war then your dad was not in the war kind of thing um so there's just so much to understand about like like the kids rebelling and they how they like each other and why they like each other and stuff like that there's also a big conversation in this book about um genetics like one of the characters fathers is working on a genetic copy of like a mouse and stuff like that um i would also like to say let me pile even more stuff on top of you because zadie smith even though she's got all this crazy encyclopedic stuff going on she also does get called out for being similar to pension and foster wallace and like all these people because she does the extreme characters thing where like some of the characters are too extreme to even exist in real life oh <laughs> Um, so that leads me to my next thing, which is something like sort of a conversation starter I wanted to have with you, Mark, because this guy, the, 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 one of the most negative things that I found about white teeth was from James Wood, who's like a very respected, you know, like he's written for the times and the New Yorker and the New York review books and all this stuff. And, um, he's really interesting. He basically, with his criticism of white teeth, he coined the term hysterical realism, which is to say, and uh, <laughs> and I'm just gonna read some stuff from Wikipedia to get you, to get you let you know what that means. So yeah, I haven't heard of that hysterical realism. It's... And as much as he disagrees with it, this this t- <laughs> this term is almost like uh you know, even if he hates it, I love it. So since he invented the term and people like put people down for it, I'm like that's what I'm looking for. Like I love hysterical <laughs> realism. So. Um, so he coined the term hysterical realism to describe the big contemporary novel the big contemporary novel that is a perpetual motion machine that appears to have embarrassed into itself into velocity. It seems to want to abolish stillness as if, as if ashamed of silence, as it were a criminal running endless charity marathon. Stories and substories sprout on every page as these novels continually flourish their glamorous congestion. Inseparable from this culture of permanent storytelling is the pursuit of vitality at all costs. Vitality is storytelling as far as these books are concerned. He claims the boundaries of realism were not being broken down, but exhausted and overworked. Um, and he did, he did sort of a really interesting word game where he kind of shits on hyper-realistic people by he writes a little paragraph being like, this is what, how stupid it sounds. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so 
let me give you his critic his fake his criticism of Zadie Smith, and then I'll give you his fake paragraph, which I think is really funny. It's like he oh. he he started like a literary shit show or whatever. So um, he says Zadie Smith's novel features, among other things, a terrorist Islamic group based in North London with a silly acronym K E V I N spelling Kevin, an animal rights group called Fate F A T E. A Jewish scientist who is genetically engineering a mouse, a woman born during an earthquake in Kingston, Jamaica in 1907, and a group of Jehovah's Witnesses who think that the world is ending on December 31st, 1992, and twins, one in Bangladesh and one in London, who both break their noses at about the same time. <laughs> so those are all things that happen in White Teeth. So now you're yeah. getting more, even more of a sense of how crazy a ride this book is, and it has a great rhythm. So then what James Woods does, which is really funny, is he basically just writes a paragraph saying anybody can write this crap, which I give him credit for that. You know, like he's shitting on people like David Foster Wallace or like even Salman Rushdie and stuff like that who make up this like crazy shit. But yeah. um, he, this is his paragraph. He says, let's say a character is introduced in London and we'll call him Toby. That is, to be or not to be. <laughs> then he will be swiftly told that he has a twin in Delhi called Boyt, which of course is an anagram of Toby, which, who, like Toby, has the same very curious genital deformation, and that their mother belongs to a religious cult based, oddly enough, in the Orkney Islands, and that their father, who was born in the exact same second that the bombing was dropped on Hiroshima, has been a Hell's Angel for the last 13 years, but a very curious <laughs> Hell's Angels group it is, devoted only to the fanatical study of late wordsworth and that toby's mad left-wing aunt was curiously struck dumb when mrs thatcher was elected prime minister in 1979 and has not spoken a word since and all this over many pages before toby has done a thing or thought a thought <laughs> <laughs> so what i would say to that is expand that to 400 pages and then we can talk yeah. like, <laughs> i kind of want to read that Exactly, dude. See, like, he's, I feel like he's missing the point. But anyway, he coined this hysterical realism thing. So then I Google, I end up, you know, going down into the Google hole or the Wikipedia, you know, thing. And uh, hysterical realism is just literally like a book of just like great books where it's like, um, you know, they've got Infinite Jest in there. They've got Gravity's Rainbow in there. They've got White Teeth, which, which is, you know, he coined the phrase by criticizing white teeth but there's also some books on there that i haven't read yet like midnight's children or underworld by delilah which i know you love and i know a lot of people love um mm -hmm. so yeah I'm, I'm basically ready to tap or the tackle the hysterical realism list thanks a lot james wood um, uh, that that thing that you just said it reminded me so much of something i've seen i i can't remember what the author was but mm -hmm. it was someone from like the 20s or 30s or whatever and it was like a tell it was like a tell a letter that he wrote or something mm -hmm. and he was talking about like it was some author i think it was, it was like uh raymond carver or like arthur c like i think it was raymond carver maybe but he wrote a letter to his friend saying like have you heard of this like sci-fi thing it re <laughs> like <laughs> he's like uh, all these hacks are trying to write it it goes something like this like <laughs> i took my laser stunner out to like sigma out of six and like right. yeah, yeah. he like he, was he just like on rambled them. on like that That's yeah awesome. yeah that's awesome. <laughs> um, that's amazing. So yeah, I mean that's 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 Zadie Smith. That's White Teeth. I can't recommend White Te Teeth enough. There's so many layers that I've just completely skipped over. I haven't given the book enough, you know, 
enough credit for what it is. The plot is just goes in every direction, and there's old, there's new, there's religious, there's secular, there's sex, there's drugs, there's just everything, and, and that's why she, she burst onto the scene, and then a lot went on her shoulders, so she's an interesting person to follow as well. Nice. It, it sounds awesome. I, I need to read it now, but if I read it now, I have to do a, a segment on it next week, <laughs> and that won't be good. No, that's not. I know that's that's actually <laughs> something that's been interesting me like since doing this podcast. Like, how is it going to catch up with like the actual reading? And you know, like, like I was saying, I want to read that thing, that book that you said, Banana um, Kitchen by Banana. And uh, you know what? I think that we should. I think that we should allow double takes. Like, if you want to do white yeah, teeth in the okay. future, just do it, man. You're gonna get right. something completely <laughs> different. I know it. Yeah. Nice. So. That's it. We'll see what the first one is. Not not yet, though. Not I got yet. something else today. Okay. So, just hand right. it over to you. All right. So, today, uh, I, I want to talk about memories and how they're formed and, you know, the stories that we tell ourselves and, and others when we recount them. Um, in my opinion, I think one of the easiest ways to form a memory, to really get it, like, have it branded in there is to uh experience pain you know especially when that pain leaves leaves its mark um you know when i when i look down like just look down at my left hand i can always see like the scars running across the fingerprints of my middle and index fingers um and you know i'm transported back to the day probably like 10 years ago or whatever when i learned in the worst possible way, how to use a chisel correctly. <laughs> oh my God. Um, uh, I, I look at the palm of my right hand um, and I see a small black dot underneath the skin. And that is the tip of a graphite pencil that broke off after some kid yeah. named, I think Eric maybe <laughs> stabbed me <laughs> during a shouting match over so, some innocuous shit. So many kids have graphite pencil wounds. Like I know, a few, <laughs> I know a few people who have like a little like stab wound. Oh my God. It's crazy. Yeah. And they just, you know, they just leave it in there. Apparently it just, it shrinks over time. Um, <laughs> as the lead seeps into your blood. Um, so anyways, do, do you, do you ever wonder how fabricated your childhood memories are? Like, do you have anything that comes to mind where it's yes, like, absolutely. that probably didn't happen? Well, no, I mean, you know, there's th there's things that definitely did happen and there's things that didn't happen. Yeah, absolutely. I think about this all the time. Um, did you have an alien story? <clears throat> yeah, I do have an alien. Yes, I've seen a it. UFO. I've seen a UFO. I have. Um, but I can't talk about that on the air no okay. yeah no <laughs> no yeah i do have an alien so i have a ufo story i thought i was thinking more of like some personal like uh dark damaging memories of like you know your parents getting divorced and shit like that yeah um but yeah no i think about that all the time if some of my memories are found yeah it's kind of strange like you know wonder how much it's constructed but anyways so a section from the book i brought today kind of talks about that a little bit i'm just going to read a, a paragraph from that Okay. It may be that the only reason childhood memories act on us so strongly is that, being the most remote we possess, they are the worst remembered, and so offer the least resistance to that process by which we mold them nearer and nearer to an ideal which is fundamentally artistic, or at least non-factual. So it may be that some of these events I describe never occurred at all, 
but only should have, and that others had not the shades and flavors, for example, of jealousy or antiquity or shame that I have later unconsciously chosen to give them. So in short, <laughs> maybe I deserve to be stabbed by Eric, <laughs> or maybe it never <laughs> happened. And that dot on my hand is just like a something uh, else, subcutaneous <laughs> mole <laughs> or something. Uh, okay. Anyways, um, shifting gears here, uh, a massive shift of gears here. Uh, I have an important question for you right now. Okay. Uh, what are your thoughts on Pringles? My thoughts on Pringles? Yeah, I, I got some right here. I fucking love Pringles. They're pretty good, right? Where would you where would you rank them among like <laughs> chips or snack food? This sounds like we just got sponsored by Pringles. <laughs> uh, where would I rank them? I got some here. Yeah, are they better than Doritos? Yes, definitely. Oh, definitely yeah? better than Doritos. Yeah. Are they? My, does, is the is the novelty factor higher than Bugles? I would go for a print in my adult age. I would go for a Pringle over a Bugle. Yes. Okay, I agree with that. Um, so the the, the reason I bring this up. <laughs> what? <laughs> There's the reason, a reason that I just ate Pringles into the microphone. A little ASMR. Um, yeah. Uh, so the reason I bring this up is, um, well, the author I want to talk about today, before he was published was an industrial engineer. Okay. And in one of the weirdest, strangest pieces of author trivia I know, he actually had a hand in developing the machine that cooks the hyperbolic paraboloid potato dough crisps we know as Pringles. Whoa, so okay, That's so weird, he's right? an author and then he also had a hand in the invention of Pringles. <laughs> yeah, that was his like his career before writing that's pretty awesome yeah it's pretty anyway awesome. like so his name is gene wolf gene and wolf. the book i want to talk about today is called peace uh so wolf he's an award-winning fantasy slash science fiction author mm -hmm. uh, probably best known for his multi-volume series the book of the new sun okay which was published in the early 80s but peace is the only book of his that i've actually read have you heard of him ever no. He's strictly fantasy sci-fi. Okay. Uh, so he was born in New York City in, in 1931. He was drafted to fight in the Korean War. Uh, he was the senior editor of the trade publication Plant Engineering before retiring to write novels full-time. What is it so about, kind of... like, what is it about soldiers and stuff where they start to write fantasy? I think that that's really interesting. I don't know. Yeah, it's an escape from whatever they saw or whatever they like. Token is the same like. thing, right? Like he was in yeah. World War One, and he was just like, "I'm gonna write this fantasy book." <laughs> yeah, and Pierce last week, like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Pierce too. The fables. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. Okay. So this guy was a soldier. So. You said he wrote a multi-volume thing because, to be honest with you, I have thought for years about how I want something like fantasy, but like that's really legit. Yeah. So this is something. I mean, I like this book a lot, so I really want to check out that series. It's called The Book of the New Sun. That's the first one. I think it's four books. 
Okay. Uh, it's also called like the Solar Cycle. I've been meaning to read that and also read um, the Earthsea series. Yeah. See, I've uh, read I've read Earthsea. Yeah. Um, I've read Earthsea and I've read Token, obviously, and obviously we've all read Harry Potter and stuff like that. I haven't read Game of Thrones yet, but. I haven't read Game of Thrones because I've read a lot of The Wheel of Time, which I also gave up on, which is like, I could do a whole freaking podcast about The Wheel of Time. Maybe yeah. I should. <laughs> How much I've thrown away on that thing. but um, Nice, we'll do a marathon episode. I would love to read some a nice piece of uh, multi-volume fantasy that's really good. But anyway, continue. Continue. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, so the book piece, uh, it's very strange. So in it, a man named Alden Dennis Weir is the unreliable narrator at what seems to be the end of his life due to a stroke. So he spends the book recalling scattered memories of the Midwestern town he has spent his whole life in. And so the memories slide back and forth through time at random intervals. And it's it's unclear if Alden is actually occupying the space within them. It's it's very strange and it jumps all over the place, but there's an ominous feeling that you know Alden, the narrator, like can't even be trusted. Like you're wondering the whole time, you know, is he seeing the future? Is he reminiscing, recalling the past, mm. or is he just constructing a false life wholesale? Okay. So on the surface, it's this scattered memory book that's kind of his his memoir or his um, ramblings even. But underneath that, there's a lot of puzzles and a lot of clues that he gives away, the author gives away about very dark events in his life. And you start to see everything kind of unravel throughout the whole, I think it's 260 pages. Um, hmm. And it, it's, it's a really cool book. It, um, and in a lot of it, it's, you know, stories within stories. So the guy's telling a story about someone else, one of his family members telling a story. And a lot of the times they're, they're really creepy, like ghost story tales. And some of them are just uh, legitimately scary. Like, <laughs> hmm. but so I want to, I want to read a little bit from a really great review I saw by uh, Philip Rains on infinityplus.co.uk okay. from, I think, 2003 or something. Okay. How do you review a story about how stories can't be trusted? How do you deal with a book that whispers, trust me, I'm lying? If the book works, if it successfully makes its point and gets us thinking about the suspect nature of storytelling, then we have to distrust the story itself and discount this message. But if the book doesn't work, if it shows itself to be a dodgy vessel for carrying any truths, then while the book may have demonstrated its own point, it won't have articulated it. The medium and the message can never come together. The paradox is frustrating. Gene Wolfe delights in paradoxes like this. In a 30-year publishing career, he's consistently been fascinated with the mechanics and contradictions of storytelling, particularly how we use memories to make stories of our lives. Storytelling and memory are inseparable in his books. In all his fiction, Wolfe's characters are always telling, forgetting, and changing stories as a way of making sense of their lives. Above all, they constantly draw attention to the unworthiness of their own accounts. Stories are not to be trusted, and yet, Wolf is obsessed with them. These literary preoccupations were present from this, Wolf's first published novel, Peace. 
taking place in a Midwest America to which he has regularly returned, Peace appears on the surface to be an uneventful book of nostalgia. A reclusive, rich old man, Alden Dennis Weir, reflects on a life growing up in a small town in the first half of the 20th century. At times, in almost numbing detail, Wolf recreates a world where people mix claustrophobic gossip about their, about their neighbors with imaginary tales of the Indians who used to live there, where the ordinariness of people's lives will crack at key moments to reveal, to reveal extraordinary passions. Peace is also a horror novel. In a series of fragmented sections, Weir recounts seemingly random episodes from his life, as a child living with his remarkable aunt Olivia, as a young adult caught up in a book-forging scam, and finally as the aging pre president of a fruit juice company. Yet the matter-of-fact, plain voice cannot hide the book's underlying sadness, as Weir wrestles with loneliness and guilt, trying to understand how his life has become so empty. Slowly, from these narrative pieces, the picture of his life emerges, not from what we are told directly, but puzzled out from the clues left in each chapter, always just enough to fill the exasperating gaps left. Weir cannot run away from his life for all the book's cozy atmosphere. Its narrator is damned. The title is ironic. There is no peace to be had here. Hmm. So back to me now. <laughs> so what do you think of that? It seems it's, it's a very strange construction for a story. It's very confusing. Yeah, I mean, it's basically just pulling apart, you know, start from nowhere and just see where it can, see where it can go. It's interesting, the, like the aging executive of a juice company. It's kind of funny. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think that draws also from his like, because like I told you, he was he was the editor of like a, a plant engineering like publication. So right, like and the Pringles of, thing, like he knows things. about that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, often, I think about so, that all the time. Like, there's a whole world out there of working people that not, not like, people don't really have a lot of insight into it. Yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, this book, there's loads of, you know, strange underpinnings that a lot of them I picked up on, but probably even more that I totally missed. Mm -hmm. um, I really like the way it's written. You know, Wolf's writing is very, it's very detailed. It's, you know, drenched in its own universe, like, the stories that he weaves about this like man child old man at this <laughs> whatever this guy it's um you know it's it's overly detailed and there's always some little thing that you pick up on that connects to something else um there's a few parts where the narrator is like recalling stories that you know his his family members had told and some of them were were terrifying like like his uncle tells this long really long like ghost story that's you know that he kind of swears is true and it's it's super fucked up um <laughs> that's awesome I, I don't so know like why. The, the action like when you're reading it it's actually sort of like creepy yeah there were some parts in there that were like it's uh i've definitely been thinking about it a lot <laughs> <laughs> cool um so I, I don't know why but like it probably doesn't make any sense at all but this book it made me think of like a Midwestern American version of um, Akira Kurosawa's Dreams. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. You know, like just like vignettes with with really stunning kind of uh, juxtaposition that leave you like yeah uneasy like, about your own uneasiness. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you know, when you're reading, there's like a sense of foreboding that never like really leaves you. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, by the end of the book, you realize that you were justified in feeling that way, but then you're also not sure why. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, you know, to, to summarize, I guess, like peace, um, I would call it subtle horror. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also call it like, like a memoir written from the perspective of like a coma. Right. Like there's these, there, there's these crazy parts in it where you're, you're pretty sure the narrator is this old man who has just suffered a stroke, but he's going through the memories of his lives and he's like able to be like, I want to go back to like a doctor's visit I had when I was like six and he'll occupy this six year old like body as the six year old memory as this old man. And he's like this little kid telling a doctor, like, I've just had a stroke. Like you, the doctor, <laughs> you've been dead for a long time. Like I remember when you died. Uh, it, it's, it's really crazy. Well, worlds. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, there's a, a quote from it that kind of s- sums it up a little bit. Um, our, our lives couldn't be viewed with detachment until they were half forgotten, like paintings, which can only be seen objectively when the artists are long dead. Hmm. Nice. But yeah. Um, but you said before that, he, but he's like, this doesn't sound like a fantasy to me. This His first novel is not a fantasy. It's like some guy in Detroit or something. Uh, it's... Yeah, it's a little bit detached from pure fantasy for sure. It's it's more of a So his other uh, but did he do other books where it was like goblins and trolls and stuff? Like why'd you say fantasy in the beginning? Uh yeah, that that I think that's what he ended up being. Oh, okay. And you know the cover of this book is loaded with little goblins and trolls and that kind of threw me off. <laughs> but really? There's like, you know, there's, yeah, yeah, the cover's kind of, kind of weird looking, but like, um, uh, there wasn't a lot of that in here, but there's, you know, almost like the implication of it, I guess. Mm-hmm. You said there's like, <laughs> ghost, there's like ghost stories from the Native yeah. Americans and stuff. Yeah. There's a lot of ghost stories. There's a lot of, um, strange kind of ominous little horror kind of events going on that aren't ever fully realized, but they create this, you know, feeling of of dread Hmm. and um yeah subtle horror is is a good good term for it but yeah um i'm i'm curious to read more of wolf's work um especially that that series that i mentioned before yeah i'm I'm interested to check it out as well i've been looking for for a series or something like that okay everyone thanks for listening this has been shitty book reports you can find us every sunday on spotify soundcloud instagram and twitter at sbr the podcast you can also email us at sbr the podcast at gmail.com give us comments suggestions corrections whatever you're feeling see you next time